Uh, it's good to see you guys. We are going to continue on this morning with our, uh, with our tour de force through the book of Colossians. Um, it's more kind of like a crawl at this pace. Uh, I promise you it, it will pick up, but uh, we kind of have zeroed in a little bit as we've, as we've approached the holiday season uh, to take the time to look at the way that Paul portrays the person and the work of Jesus in an effort to prepare our hearts and prepare our minds and prepare our souls for the holiday season. Uh, it, it comes up quick, it comes up fast, and it hits hard, and it begins to devour our conscience, it devours our families, it devours our budgets, and all of a sudden we wonder what in the world do we have really to give thanks for, and why in the world are we taking time this particular year to celebrate Christmas? It becomes Santas and, and, and mangers and, and turkeys, and, and we lose sight of the reality of what God has done and the reasons that we have to really give thanks and the reasons that we do celebrate what we do celebrating Christmas. So I've picked on Advent and I've picked on things like that for the past few weeks, but next week when Advent actually starts, we'll, we'll give it some love and, and we'll, we'll give it some dignity again uh, because the church calendar is an amazing, amazing tool that the church has had for centuries to keep the story of the gospel and the story of redemption at the forefront of the life of the church. I mean, long before we made church calendars about meetings and schedules and practicalities that made sense to us, the church had a calendar that defined the year by the work and the move of God in the life of his people and the call of the church. And, and before mass literacy, it was one of the ways that the church taught the people of God about the story of God and redemption. So we're going to talk a little bit more about that next week as we actually start Advent. Um, we'll give some dignity back to it again, and I'll quit picking on it. Um, and really when I do that, I'm picking on us. You know, We tend to take things that the church has done for hundreds of years and and we throw a baby out with the bathwater and say because it's become a sense of formalism to some people, then it's of no use at all. And it's really not that way at all. So when I pick on the church calendar and I pick on Advent for the past few weeks, I'm really picking on us and our tendency to disrespect what God has done in the church for hundreds of years and for generations. So that's really a knock on, on us. Um, but this week, we're going to continue to narrow our, our focus a bit on how Paul portrays Jesus and what he has done. And and so far, we've seen in this one compact, amazing piece of Scripture in the first chapter of Colossians that Paul has begun to argue that Jesus is no mere man. He's, he's no mere prophet. He's no mere martyr. Uh, he's not just a good man that you can choose whether or not to trust, to obey, to listen to, or not, that he is, in fact, God. God of God, Lord of Lord, light of lights, the fullness of deity dwells bodily in the person of Jesus Christ. He, he's not just a historical man that you can learn a lot of things about and choose whether or not to, to listen to or not. He is God himself. And we spend a lot of time talking about what it means for Jesus to be God, so we won't unpack that again. And we move from there into the, Paul saying that part of the proof and part of his, his witness to being God was the fact that he was with God and created all things that exist, all things that are, that came out of nothing, were created by Jesus part of being God, part of being the fullness of deity was the fact that <clears throat> he was an agent in creation before all time. And one of the things outside of just the physical world that he created, but that he created in his body on the cross was the church. And Paul went on to say that Jesus is the head of the church. And we took a little time to celebrate what God has been doing here in the last seven months, really. I mean, we came here in May. Um, so since we've been here in May, we began to celebrate what God was doing, and we talked about some of the hopes that we had as we got towards the end of the year, and, and the reality is kind of where we are, and some of the things that we're moving forward with, and just some of the amazing blessings that God has 
begun to, to really just unpack for us in the church, in the city, but at the same time, kind of understand the call that God has for us in this city, to be a reflection of his glory in a place that has really lost a sense of awe and lost a sense of wonder at who the person of Jesus really is and what difference he does make in our lives right here and, and right now. And we talked about him being the head of the church. We talked about what the church is, what the church is as a body, and what it means for Jesus to be the head of it. It's not me. It's not any of the other guys that we, we showed you a video of last week who God is calling into leadership here. It's not us. We're simply shepherds under Jesus, the chief shepherd, and we follow him and, and we do what we can do to equip you to follow him as well. And, and so he is the one that started the church. He is the one that leads the church. He is the one that has authority over the church. He's the one that empowers the church. And ultimately, when a church becomes unfaithful to who he is and the mission he's put them on, he's the one that begins to take away the reflection of himself in the church. He starts them and he closes them. He is the head of the church. And so this week, we're going to move on to another little piece of scripture in this first chapter of Colossians that Paul, uh, where Paul talks about the person and the work of, of Jesus. And it's one that we, we don't talk about too much. It's, it's one that... It, is a part of a text that often gets preached, but oftentimes gets skipped by. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray for us. Uh, we're going to open up the Bible, and, and to start our discussion on this next piece of Colossians, we're going to start in Luke, because it makes a lot of sense to start in Luke when we're talking about Colossians. Um, and hopefully you'll understand that when, when we get there. Um, so let me pray for us, and we'll get going. Father, we thank you uh, again for this privilege that we have to be together. Uh, to come together to study your word. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you have spoken, that you have revealed yourself, and that you have called us to yourself, and you are calling us to yourself. And, and so we ask that in the, the few moments that we have, that by your spirit you come and do what only you can do in our hearts and in our minds. Uh, make them new, wake them up, open them up to see your beauty reflected in your son, that you might be glorified, uh, and that we might experience real and tangible and everlasting joy. Amen. Amen. I don't know if you're like me, but um, I probably have about a half dozen or so, that's probably an understatement, um, a half dozen or so stories or passages in the Bible that if I could um, quantum leap, do you ever watch that show, Quantum Leap? Do you ever watch that? Do you know what I'm talking about? You're going to date yourself on this one. Um, <laughs> if you ever watch Quantum Leap or that, where that guy would, would just, I don't know, quantum leap into different periods of time that he might uh, affect history. I'm not a scientist. I studied Bible. Um, so, and he would go back in time, and he'd find himself in these different periods of time. And uh, there are these particular passages in the Bible and, and, and sections of the Bible that I wish, if it was just possible, that at one moment that I could just leap into those sections, into those stories, into those moments to be there. I don't know if you've read the Bible, and are there, are there any of these pieces or these stories in there for you, but I just wish that there was a, a, a chance that there would just be an opportunity that I could go and I could just be there. That could just be a fly on the wall. Uh, I don't want to say anything. I don't want to do anything. I don't want to stay there forever. Um, I am a child of modernity. Uh, I like heaters and I like air conditioners and I like ovens and I like all of those kinds of things. I don't want to stay in the first century, but I want to appear in moments of time and and bits and pieces, and to taste and to see and to be a part and just tangibly sense what was going on in a moment. And there's about a half dozen of those in the Bible for me, and one of them is in Luke chapter 24. And if you've got your Bibles, you can go there. I'll, I'll, I'll read where we're going. If you don't, don't worry about it. I'm not going to put it up here on the screen. 
Um, so Luke chapter 24 is the last chapter in the book of Luke, and, and it really, it ends with a bang, with, with the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And as cool as it would have been to have been in that tomb when that happened, to see that, that's not the point that I'm talking about. Um, the next piece of, of Luke chapter 24, when some of his followers are disillusioned, when some of his disciples have become disappointed because of the hope that they had had, and we'll see it in a minute, in this person of Jesus, and all of a sudden he's crucified on a cross, and he's put in a tomb, and for three days he's dead, and all the hopes that they had had, and, and all the dreams that they had had, and the tangible taste of of a promise of something different was gone, and they find themselves leaving Jerusalem and wandering to this town called Emmaus, and, and while they're walking, this man appears to him. We're going to read the story. This is this is one of these texts that I wish I could just go back to. I mean, if I could just jump in time and be walking along that road, instead of two guys, there were three, and I could just be walking and see what was happening. This is arguably probably the greatest Bible study in all of history. Um, listen to this. The very day, the day of the resurrection, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all the things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near, and he went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. That's pretty cool. The the language there can go two ways. It can mean that in his resurrected body, Jesus was in some sense unrecognizable, or it could just mean that Jesus was disguising himself, which is actually even cooler. That Jesus is disguising himself and kind of messing with these guys a little bit. I like that one more, but it could go either way. Uh, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. And one of them named Cleopas answered, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and all of the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. And besides, besides all of this, it's now the third day since these things ever happened. See, one of the one of the things I want you to get, and one of the things I think about when I read this is disappointment is one of those human emotions that unites all people through all time and all place. You don't have to go into Barnes & Noble to find a book on how to be disappointed. Nobody writes those books. I don't know if you've ever seen them. There's all kinds of books about ways to not be disappointed, ways not to become depressed, ways not to become disillusioned. But nobody has to write a book about being disappointed and being disillusioned. It's a ex- human experience because of sin that, that all of us can understand, that all of us can connect. And I don't know if you get the weight of the disillusionment from these guys. I mean, ever since the beginning, ever since Genesis 3, ever really since Genesis 1, when God created everything that was and everything that is, and, and man and God walked in perfect harmony together and experienced a relationship together that we only get a sense of and a taste of right now that's woven into each of our hearts. Genesis 3, 15 comes in and Satan had entered that perfect 
environment and that perfect relationship. And, and he had tempted humanity to exchange the truth about who God is and what he's done for a lie. And Adam and Eve are our perfect predecessors, predecessors back in the day, believed Satan and did not believe God. And they exchanged the glorious truth of God for something that wasn't true about him. And sin entered that relationship. It entered the world. It, it scarred and began to tear apart the, the fabric of something that we can't really even describe with words that bring any real accuracy right now. There was a perfection in relationship between man and God that was separated at that point. And in Genesis 3.15, we see God stepping in and, and cursing Satan. And we see God stepping in and we see him cursing humanity because of their disbelief in who he is. But in the midst of that curse, he makes this great promise. Most of you are familiar with this. He says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring and and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And The idea is that God would at one point, in, in the fullness of time, scriptures will say, will we'll bring a Messiah who will, who will come, and, and in, in the quickest way I can say it, will reverse the curse that God had just put on man and put on humanity and put on the earth. And from that point forward, in the story of the Old Testament, in the story of the people of God, it's really the story of a longing and a hope and an expectation amongst the people of God, for God to come and do what he had promised in the beginning. That there was this day when he would come in this Messiah and he would make right all the things that had gone wrong. And For hundreds of years and for generations, their expectations of God would become distorted, much like ours do sometimes. And, and their expectations weren't based on the reality of who God was for them and how he revealed himself, but more about what they wanted from God. And, and because of their expectations being a little bit off and a little bit twisted, a disappointment would come and and there was a moment in time when, when the hope of God to come and to redeem his people had become a, a hope for this political and military figure to come in and, and to redeem Israel from persecution and to redeem Israel from oppression by foreign lands and to establish Israel as the nation of God and the people of God that would rule and reign over all nations in the earth. And here was this hope that in this man Jesus of Nazareth, these disciples are talking about, that he has been a prophet from God who spoke the word of God and did deeds like no one else had ever done. And the hope of the people had grown so strong and, and so heavy that this was the one that they were waiting for, that all of a sudden, hundreds of years and generations of hope and expectation might be fully realized in this man. All that they had been promised by God in their minds was going to be realized on earth in this man. And, and there he was killed, hung on a cross, the ultimate of curses in the mind of a Hebrew, buried, put in a tomb, and not just in a tomb, now he's been there for three days. Not just 12 hours where he could wake up, maybe. Maybe he wasn't dead. He just passed out. No, three days. He was done. And here these guys are, walking away, leaving Jerusalem. I don't know if you can taste, if there's anything in your world that's ever, that's ever been so hoped for that's ever been so desired, that you've ever wanted so badly that at the point that you thought it was finally going to come, it was gone. I don't know if you got that. That's what was happening with these guys. They find themselves walking away. And as they're on this road, Jesus appears and, what are you talking about? What's, what's the issue? And he's kept himself from them. And here's what it says. 
He said, some of the women of our company have amazed us, these disciples said. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they didn't find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen visions of angels who said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they didn't see him. And so he said to them, foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and then enter into glory? Was it not the pattern of God in the entire story of his people that the ones that he had sent to deliver you must suffer and that through that suffering your deliverance might come? And beginning with Moses, I love this, and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all of the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus, in this seven-mile walk, began with the prophets, took the Old Testament, took the scriptures of God's people, and began to walk through them and show them how everything in the scriptures were pointing to him. That to understand what God had been doing and what God was now doing, you had to understand them through the lens of who Jesus really is. Jesus has come and, and he has revealed to these men in his teaching, and we'll see it in just a second, that what God was doing, the purpose of God, the plan of God, the hope of God for his people and for his glory and all the world, in some sense, had been hidden from people for centuries. They couldn't get it. There was something about what God had promised and how God had promised to do it that as they lived before God and as the pro- God spoke through his prophets and as the history was recorded, there was something in it that they just couldn't get. And Jesus walked along with these guys and said, here's, here's the mystery that had been concealed for centuries. For generations, here's the mystery of what God was doing and how he was going to do it, and I'm going to reveal it to you. It's about me. And he takes them through the entire Old Testament. And he shows them how everything was about him. All of the hope, all of the expectation, all of the promise, all of the longing, all of the fulfillment. The entire scope of God's redemptive story finds its center in the purpose of Jesus, in the person of Jesus. And so they keep walking and they get to this village and Jesus acted as if he was going further, but they urged him to stay. And they said, stay with us, for it's toward evening, and the day is now spent. And so Jesus went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took the bread, and he blessed it, and he broke it, and he gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They would have loved to have been there. They would have loved to have been walking along and listened to Jesus unpack the entire Old Testament and how everything that they had heard and everything that they had hoped for found its fulfillment in him. And one day we'll go back and preach how Jesus breaking the bread opened their eyes to this. That's an amazing story in and of itself. But there was this moment when all of a sudden it made sense. The coin dropped. The hope, the expectation, the anticipation, the longing, the disillusionment, the disappointment, it was gone. In a moment, the mystery of God that had been concealed for them for generations had now been revealed to them in the purpose, person of Jesus. And he vanished. And he goes on, and in a few verses later, he reappears to his disciples. And, and in verse 40, 44, he says this. Jesus said to them, These are my words that I spoke with you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then Jesus opened their minds 
to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer on the third day and rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Jesus said that the mystery of God, the purpose of God, hidden for generations, is now revealed in him. The only way to understand what God was up to, what God is up to, and what God is going to do is to understand it through the person of Jesus. One of our hopes for, for years is to help one another understand that to read the scriptures and to understand the scriptures, we've got to read them with a keen eye to who Jesus is and how this scripture, particularly scriptures in the Old Testament, point to who he is because we have the, the possibility that they didn't have at that point to understand that Jesus is the key to understanding what God was doing in this whole story. And so one thing about Jesus that we've got to see as we move into Colossians here in a second is that the mystery of God that had been concealed for generations was now revealed in him. And all of Scripture is about Jesus. All of what God was doing and planning and purposing for his people for all of time, from that moment in Genesis when he began to curse humanity and curse Satan, but promise a deliverer found its fulfillment in Jesus. So now flip over to Colossians 1. That one may come up there. Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. Paul is, is talking about his ministry to the church. He's talking about his, the purpose that he has for being the man that God's called him to be. And he says this, he says, Now, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. And we talked about this a few weeks ago, the nature of the church being the body of Christ, of, of which I, Paul, became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. And here it is, to make the word of God fully known. Now, we know what he's talking about now. Paul's ministry given by God was for him to go and to proclaim the word of God fully known, to make the word of God fully known. What is the fully understood word of God? It said it all finds its fulfillment in Jesus. So the first thing that Paul sees is his, as his compulsion, as his mandate, as his purpose, as a, as a pastor, as a minister, you can insert your name in here, is that we are to make the word of God fully known. But more than that, it's the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of of the glory of this mystery. For, for centuries, the people of God had, had thought that God's purposes and his plans found their fulfillment in the people of Israel. Even as we read Luke, those men said, we had hoped that this was the one who was going to fulfill the hopes of Israel. Their entire understanding of what God was doing had become centered on themselves as an ethnicity, as a people. I mean, even when God called them out, even when God made them a people, when he talked to, to Abraham, the great patriarch of their faith, he said, I am going to bless you that you might be a blessing to all nations, that through you all nations might be blessed. But even in their sin, and, and we can talk about this another time, in fact, we probably will, even in their sin, and we do the same thing, we tend to take the purposes of God as he reveals himself and try to turn them back in on ourselves and make them all about who we are. And so just as the the promise and the hope and the expectation of God had become 
twisted in their minds as they looked for this military political figure who would make their ethnicity, their nation, their people, Israel, the people of God that would rule and reign over all nations in the earth. God is saying, no, here's the mystery. Here's what you didn't get. Here's what was concealed for generations, but now I'm going to reveal to you in the person and work of Jesus, this mystery has great riches and it has great glory and it's not just for you. It's for everyone. It's not just for the people of Israel. It's for all nations, Gentiles, every ethnicity on the entire earth. This mystery, its riches and its glory is for them as well. And what is it? Well, it'd be easy to stop and say, now, Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of the scriptures. Jesus is the fulfillment of the mysteries. The answer is Jesus. Yes, but no. Yes, but incomplete. It's not historical Jesus. It's not that Jesus is real. It's not that Jesus was raised from the dead. It's not that there's this historical person and work of Jesus that is the answer to the question of what is the mystery that was hidden for ages and now revealed. The answer is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The mystery hidden for generations but now revealed to everybody. Every race, every nation, every ethnicity, all people, the saints, the church, and through them, for now all of history, us sitting here right now, is this, Christ in you. Not just Christ around you, not just Christ for you, not just Christ beside you, not just Christ somebody you read about, but Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the potential to live real life before death. The hope of glory, Christ in you, the promise of real life after death. Christ in you, the potential for real life before death. John said about Jesus that he came, that that men might have life. And one of the things that I think saddens me so much about myself and about the church at large and, and really our generation is that we settle for something so less than life. There, there is an existence that we tend to settle into. And our, our lives and our hopes and our sense of potential gets no bigger than ourselves. We, we wrap our sense of potential up into how we understand who we are and, and what we can do. And this is no different than the people of Israel that this mystery was hidden from. And, and you'll see this in just a second. You see, one thing that everybody does Another one of those human traits that unites all people since creation, and in particular since the fall, is that before we enter into any situation, a new job, a new assignment, a new relationship, a new conversation, no matter what it is, we assess our potential to actually complete it. Something you do in your heart, in your mind, before you enter into any situation that you find yourself in, is you assess your potential to actually do what it is that's being asked of you and how well you think you can do it, and what resources you think you have to accomplish it. And if you don't think you can actually do it, you don't do it. All of us measure our potential before we begin to do something that's asked of us, no matter what it actually is. And the problem is our potential is measured by something that is far less than what God has called us to measure it by in Christ. Most of the time, we measure our potential to live, our potential for what is there, 
our potential for what God can call us to do. We measure it by ourselves. We measure it by our sense of capacity to perform to a particular level. And that is so far short of what God has called us to be and what he has done for us in Christ. Started way back. Well, we can go back to, the, to where this thing started in the Old Testament in the beginning. Here's part of the mystery that was hidden for so many generations. I won't, I won't turn to it for you. After God cursed humanity and after God cursed Satan and began to promise the, the deliverance and the redemption that would come in this Messiah, the story of the Old Testament is a story of God delivering his people physically from slavery and from oppression and calling them to himself. The entire story of the Old Testament is a God physically taking them away from something and calling them back to himself. Here's an example. Here's, this will help you understand where we're going. People of God found themselves enslaved in Egypt. You know the stories. You've probably seen the Joseph movies and all those kinds of things. They found themselves enslaved in Egypt, and God broke in, and God stepped in, and dropped the plagues and all of those things and delivered them out of Egypt, away from, away from the nation that enslaved them for some 400 years. And he calls them out to be his people, and he calls them to himself. And then what does he give them? What does he give them at that point? Bible people. He calls them out of slavery to himself, and he gives them the Ten Commandments. He gives them the Ten Commandments. It's very important that you understand the sequence in which God did this. Did God call the people, deliver the people, bring them to himself and give them the commandments, or did he give them the commandments and then deliver them from slavery? He delivered them from slavery and then gave them the commandments. See, if God had done it differently, if God had actually given the people the law, given the people the commandments, and said, this is how you respond to who I am, and then deliver them, what would they have always thought? They would have always thought that their deliverance was based on how well they obeyed what God told them to do. Their potential would have always been measured on their capacity to obey God. I'm going to ask you, how well do you do with just the Ten Commandments? Terrible. Terrible. How well do we actually even honor our mother and our father perfectly today, no matter what age we are? And how well do we do it not wanting what our neighbor has, his donkey or his spouse? We don't do it well, and we don't do it perfectly. And see, what God was doing was he was calling his people to himself, and he was revealing who he was for them, and then he gave them the law that they might be free to live a life of freedom in response to who he was. But the the fault mode of a sinful heart is to take that law and say, this is the way that I can find approval and significance and forgiveness before God. And so all of a sudden, the people of Israel take the law of God and say, God will love me, forgive me, deliver me, heal me, whatever the circumstance may be, when I do these things. What God was saying in that process, even in the very beginning, hidden, the mystery they couldn't see, finally revealed in Jesus was that, no, I have delivered you. I have done for you what you could not do for yourself. I have done for you what you had no capacity in and of yourself to do. Now, here's how you respond. Here's how you live. 
Here's how you find freedom. Here's how you find joy. I have delivered you. Now live with me with everything that you have and everything that you are because of who I am and what I have done. It's not what you do and then I'll deliver you. It's not here, you love me first and now I'll respond by delivering you. It's no, I have loved you before you loved me and I have delivered you that you may love me and that you may have life. The people of God in the Old Testament began to constantly measure their potential based on how well they could perform and measure themselves up to God's laws, hoping that he would respond by loving them when all along God was saying, no, 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 here's the deal. I have loved you first. This is who I am and what I have done now. You obey not out of a sense of duty, not out of a sense of guilt, not out of some heavy weight that's been put upon you by a law. No, you recognize who I am and what I have done, and you obey me out of a sense of delight. There is a joy inherent in being who God has made you to be and in loving him and how he's presented himself because of who he is and what he has done. And the people of God for centuries from that point forward have always measured themselves and defined their potential on how well they could perform in light of the hope that God would respond to them in a way that they had wanted. But all along, God has said, no, 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 that's not, that's not the way it's set up. Christ in you is the reality that God has done for you what you could not do for yourself. The miracle and the mystery that was hidden that's been now revealed, that we continue to twist in our minds, that we continue to, to misshape and misunderstand, the mystery that was hidden was not that we have to obey and we have to perform and have to do particular things. It's that we actually have the capacity to. It's that we actually have the capacity to. God has come in Christ and done in us what we could never produce in our own merit. In fact, if they had actually listened to the prophets that God had sent them, and if they had actually understood a bit of what they were saying, they would have gotten this. In fact, Ezekiel says it probably better than anybody. Listen to this. I think I, I, think I typed this out so you could hear it. Yeah, listen to Ezekiel in chapter 36. This is God speaking to the people of Israel. I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. The mystery that's been hidden for generations has now been revealed in Jesus is this. We have the potential and the power to live a life in every circumstance that reflects the glory of God. We have the power and the potential to respond to the difficulties and circumstances in life, the joyful times and the disappointing times, in a way that reflects the glory of God and the joy of God in knowing who he is and what he has done for us. That is the mystery that's been hidden for generations. It's not that we actually do right things. It's that we actually have the capacity to do the things that God has called us to. It's not that we actually become obeyers of the truth, but we actually become lovers of the truth. God said, I will take out of you the heart of stone. I will come and deliver you from the sinfulness and the hardness of your own heart in Jesus. I will take that out. I'll put a new heart within you, and I'll put my spirit within you, and I will cause you to love me and obey me. I will cause you not to do what I want you to do like a robot, but I will give you the desires and the passions of your heart that I put in there that you might want to know me, that you might want to trust me, that you might want to follow me. I will deliver you in a way that you could not even imagine. 
The mystery hidden for generations is not that religion and, and our faith is about what we do on the outside in hopes that God would transform us on the inside. It's that God comes inside first in Christ and transforms us, and that makes a change in the outside and how we live. It's an inside-out religion versus an outside-in religion. This is what's tripped up religious people in the church for generations. The Pharisees, I have massive respect for the Pharisees. I hope you hear more people say that. That's a, we have villainized the Pharisees in a really unhealthy way. Now, they are not good role models. But one thing about the Pharisees is they were massively devoted. Their devotion and commitment to how they understood who God was in the scriptures is unparalleled in all of history. These men understood the word of God, they, 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 they knew the law of God, and they did all that they could to obey the law of God, but it was outside in. It was the hope that if they did all of these things, if they understood it, it, all that God had said and obeyed it to the strictest T, their potential to honor God and live a life that glorified him was based on what they could do. And if they did all of that, then God would love them. Then they would be accepted before God. Then they would be the good people and everybody else would be the bad people. They missed it. They had lots of religion, but very little mercy. Lots of religion, but their hearts were very far away from God. Very far away from who he is. Mystery, hidden for generations, but now revealed in Christ. That it's not about what we do that earns God's favor. It's about what he has done and is doing to cause us to know him, to love him, to serve him, to honor him, to be with him with all that we are. The mystery revealed is not just Jesus, but Jesus in you. The potential to actually live a real life. Real life, not just existence. Real life that honors God. Real life with real passions to see God glorified in everything that you do. Real life with real hope and real desire. Real life right now. Life free from the dominance of sin. The sinful heart of stone removed by God and replaced with a heart that has desires and longings after him. You can't do it. Your performance won't do it. You can't obey enough things to get God to love you enough and then do what you think you, he should do to reward you for what you've done. That tends to be how we operate. That's the default mode in our heart. No matter how long you've been around the church, no matter how long you've been around Christianity, that's the default mode. That's the boot on the keyboard. I'll do this, and then he'll love me. The beauty of the mystery is he has done what we could not do, and he has given us what we need to live the life that he has called us to live. And it's not up to our performance. It's up to his. And he came, and we say it all the time, and lived the life that we were created to live, and then died to pay the price for the life that we live instead. And God vindicated that sacrifice by raising him from the dead. And he has revealed in that, in Jesus, the mystery that everybody for generations was waiting to see. The one hope for every nation and all people and all of the earth. Christ in you. Christ in you. The potential to live a life that glorifies God right here, right now. The best part is that's not the end of what he's saying. Not just Christ in you, free from the dominance of sin in your life right now, but it's Christ in you, the hope of glory. 
the promise that one day everything that God said would be made right would be made right. The promise that one day everything in creation and in our lives and in our bodies and in all of our experience will be reconciled. The promise that one day the new heavens and the new earth will be a reality and in eternity we'll stand before God and he'll wipe away every tear. Every promise is fulfilled ultimately in that day. Christ in you, the the power to live now and the hope of a real life after death. You see, the thing that's so amazing about that, the thing that that at this point, at least in my life and, and, and in my relationship with God, that that compels me in, in this promise is the certainty with which we have that Jesus is at the right hand of God the Father and that God has vindicated his sacrifice on our behalf and raised him from the dead and he now rules and reigns with God over all that is. The certainty that we have that Jesus is there right now and is empowering us by his spirit to live the life that he's called us to live is the same certainty that we have that one day it will all be made right. The hope and the certainty that we have that God will finish all that he has already started in his entire story of redemption is the certainty that we have to build a life of faith and hope and love upon. When we have a certainty that it's Christ in us, that it's what he has done for us and is doing in us that is our hope, that is our righteousness, and that gives us a a promise of an eternal future. It frees us up to live a life right now that without that hope and without that certainty left to ourselves, we wouldn't do. It frees us to live a life that, of love and sacrifice and service that without it, we wouldn't, we wouldn't do. But he's promised us an eternal hope and an eternal future with him. He's promised us a fullness of joy that is unparalleled. It's wired in our hearts Our hearts are hardwired for eternity. And the promise of a future with him, all things being made right, frees us up to live completely differently today. It frees us up to be the people that he's called us to be. We no longer have to hold so tightly to the things that we have today that we think can bring us hope. We hold tightly to him and who he is and what he has done, and that frees us to to be the church. It frees us up to be the people he created us to be, to reflect his glory to a place that has long since forgotten his importance and marginalized his reality. The mystery hidden for generations now revealed in Jesus is the potential of real life right now and the promise of real life in his presence for all eternity. Let me, let me pray for us. Now, Father, I'll be the first to say that more than I, I care to even admit, much of my relationship with you is based upon my sense of how well I am doing for you. That much of my sense of your love for me and is based on the, the things that I'm doing for you or the things that I'm failing at. That is such a, 
but it's such a disregard for, for what you have done in Jesus. But I ask in my heart and all of our hearts, Lord, that you begin to do a work to, to transform our understanding of your greatness and your grace and your mercy in Jesus. Help us to see that, Lord, you have come and done what we could not do in our potential our potential as followers of Christ is not measured on our performance, but it's measured on you in us. Our potential is Christ in us. Lord, let that transform how we live and how we love you and, and how we love one another. Ultimately, Lord, we ask this for your glory, that your name may be made known and may be, may be made great. Amen. Amen.